Hello, and welcome to Made Simple, a podcast about technology, media, and their effects on society. We explore relevant topics through the words of the scientists who directly research them. My name is Giulia Ranzini. And my name is Andreu Casas. So nice weather today, huh? Um, <laughs> despite the um, ever-gray, ever-raining Dutch winter, it's really undeniable that the winters we have right now are not the ones we had when we were children. Now, it's estimated that the global temperatures have risen up to 0.2 degrees uh, Celsius every decade from 1975 to today, which makes it uh, really quite undeniable that um, the presence and the activities of humans have something to do with climate change. And yet, not everybody agrees. Oh, yes. Not everybody agrees. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely climate change uh, has been a very salient issue, right, in the last um, several decades, I would say. And yet still, you know, a lot that we don't know and a lot that we, that we need to still uh, figure out moving forward. And, um, um, I think it was, you know, during the Glasgow summit last year in October, November, uh, 2021, that I realized that even myself, I don't really know, um, you know, I know the basic facts, but, uh, I would really like to know more about, how much has the climate change? Um, you know, what about the human uh, aspect of it? And less about how humans have caused climate change, but also about, um, you know, how does human psychology fit in all of it? You know, who believes in climate change or that climate change is actually a thing? And um, who is in favor or against particular policy solutions and what explains those differences, et cetera. So I basically, I realized it's, it's such an important issue and I, I'm still lacking so much uh, information. And so um, uh, what did you do about it? Yeah, right. <laughs> so I thought that it would be a perfect uh, a perfect topic for, for our podcast. And so basically uh, I brought two experts. Uh, the first one is uh, Pepin Bakker. He's a, a natural scientist and he basically uh, gave me the key factual information to understand uh, how the climate has been changing, for how long, what are kind of the key determinants of this change, but also thinking about how do scientists try to understand how things will go moving forward? How do they kind of model um, the, the future climate? And so I learned a lot um, about like the basic factual information in that front. And then, as I said, I was really interesting on the on the human aspect and 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 you know who believes in climate change, who supports particular policies, what's the psychology behind all of that. And so, in the second part of today's episode, we're going to have a conversation with uh, Matthew Goldberg, and um, and basically he's he's going to tackle on all these uh, more uh, social scientific uh, puzzles and questions. Fantastic. That sounds like a lot of uh, super relevant information. I'm looking forward to both of the interviews. Yeah, let's go for it. Our first guest today is uh, Papayan Bakker. Uh, he's a, a scientist here at Davu. And uh, he's going to help us understand uh, the basic factual information about uh, climate change. So let me just say hello and welcome to our uh, guest. And uh, can you please just introduce yourself uh, very briefly? Yes, thank you. I'm Bakker and I work uh, at the Vrije Universiteit in the Earth Science Department as a lecturer and teacher. 
um, and as a researcher. And I study mostly past climate change, but also present and future climate change. And as an earth scientist, past climate change it can be quite long in the past, um, thousands of years. Yeah, and my main expertise is on climate modeling. So using big computers, climate models to uh, understand and project future climate change. Nice, that's that's perfect. I think you're going to be uh, the perfect guest to talk about the things I wanted uh, to first address in this episode. Um, basically, I wanted you to help me get the facts about climate change straight. And so the first question I had to you is basically, how do we know that there is climate change? So basically from a scientific perspective, what kind of indicators do scientists look at or have been looking at in the last uh, 10, 20 uh, plus years that, that clearly show that the climate has been changing? Yeah, this would be really the, I guess the basic climate variables that we look at. Um, the most obvious one being temperature. Um, so there are many, stations around the world um, which measure surface temperature um, but also ships going onto the ocean and actually most ships that cross the ocean they also measure temperature all the time so we have um, sea surface temperature from that so those are the two key variables um, that we've been measuring actually for decades surface temperature has been measured already for maybe 150 years in some places wow, um, and on top of that, there's important variables like sea ice concentration and, um, and also sea level has been a very important one, which has also in fact been measured at particular stations for a very long time. Um, but as you can imagine, the, uh, the number of observations we have um, is by far the largest in the most recent decades since we have satellite images. Um, and the further back in time you go, decades, hundreds of hundreds of years, um, it certainly gets less and less, and so it gets more uncertain. But yeah, these, all this data is combined, and uh, this gives us a really clear picture of the uh, ongoing increases of temperature in most locations, surface temperature, ocean temperatures, sea ice decline, um, and sea level rise. I, I would say those are the most important key variables. Yeah, that, that seems like a a rich variety of, of variables. And, and you said that, of course, the data gets better if uh, we get closer uh, in the past. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, and I don't know much about this topic, so I think uh, going to the basics will be very useful uh, for the audience as well. Um, so you're, you're mentioning that there, there has clearly been an upper trend when it comes to, you know, to temperature or, or uh, ocean temperature or, or downtrend when it comes to uh, sea ice and so forth. Um, has this been sort of an increment, uh, like a gradual incremental change or, or, or there was a point in time that clearly everything started or, or that there was a big jump? What does the data tell us? Um, yeah, it's not so easy to answer that in a very easy way um, or perhaps not for a scientist. Um, yeah, the, the, the trends are really becoming significant, I guess, as we would say, um, is since, I guess, the 60s or the 70s or so. Okay, that's the um, point where things speed up. Yes, and in hindsight, we would say that's the point where we really um, started to see significant trends, although at that time, 
uh, not many people realized. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and just to have uh, some perspective, and maybe I'm asking too detailed uh, numbers at this point, and, and feel free to say, you know, I, I don't have the data with me, but um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, can you give us some like raw numbers to compare? So you're saying that the temperature has been going up. Uh, do we know, can you say something about what's the average world temperature these days? And I don't know if that's the exact measure, uh, but something, something to compare what's going on now to let's say, you know, the 60s and, and the 70s or 10 or 20 years ago, by, by how many degrees or how, how much have things changed? Yeah, that's, I guess, always the key question. Um, yeah, how we measure that is that we compare um, current observations, current global temperatures with what we call the pre-industrial period. So basically the period before we think humans really start to affect the climate, which is usually taken about to be before 1900 or so. Mm -hmm. um, and compared to that period, the globe has now warmed by about one degree. Yeah, which is always a difficult value. What was one? What does one degree of global warming actually mean? Yeah. Um, it sounds like a very little, I guess. One degree, who cares? Yeah, when, when you um, in isolation, it, it does look or sound. Yeah. yeah. Well, on the other hand, if you compare it to uh, the big discussions that are on a scientific and political level about uh, the Paris agreements and uh, lately Glasgow, they, there they talk about one and a half to two degrees. Okay. Um, so then you have to consider that of, of these one and a half degrees, that's that's they want to keep global warming within one and a half degree. Okay. Um, but of that one and a half degree, we have already done one degree. So two thirds uh, of the global warming. Quite late to the if, game of solving this. <laughs> yes. So in, if you see it in this respect, then I guess one degree is all, all of a sudden a lot. Um, and there's another, I think, nice way to, to look at it. Um, if you think about um, about the Netherlands and what would what it would mean if you would um, warm the Dutch climate by uh, one degree um, compared to other places, and so they often make the comparison that the climate uh, in southern France is about on average on yearly average one degree warmer. Um, so a one degree warming that basically means that you, you you change the Dutch climate into a climate of Bordeaux in France, for instance. Yeah. Um, nice. And that all of a sudden sounds much more, much more, I guess. And uh, yeah, you yeah, can definitely. imagine what it will mean. And I, I want to get very shortly into the, you know, what, what are the key causes of, of this of these increasing temperature and all the other measures that, that, that you mentioned. But I, I found this, uh, you know, this plus one degree. Uh, and, and as you said, with the political agreements of not going over one and a half and two, uh, I find this really interesting. And I was thinking when you were talking about is there a way to to revert? Is there a way to go back and uh, you know to go minus one so that we get to the starting point, or or this is completely out of the picture and totally infeasible? Um, yeah, it depends on if you ask from a I guess a physical point of view or a political point of view or social. Um, but yeah, now in principle, you it, you can revert it if you would if we would go back to pre-industrial greenhouse gas levels. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, wait long enough, which in this case is really quite long. I, I think you would have to wait hundreds of years, in fact, okay. uh, because the system is very slow. Um, but then, yes, you could go back to, uh, to zero, yes. 
Okay. So it's, it's like mathematically feasible, feasible, but uh, in reality, thinking about scenario that would bring us there seems very unfeasible, right? Yes, you would have to go to what we call um, a neutral, um, so net zero emissions, as they call it. Um, but actually, that would that of course would only stabilize at the current state. So you would actually have to go to negative emissions to go back to pre-industrial. Yeah, so it uh, doesn't sound very plausible to me in the coming uh, decades or so. And and so I wanted to talk a little bit about you know what got us into this into this mess and what caused the problem. And you already kind of pointed to a couple of things, right? You talk about uh, the industrial era, you talk about the 60s and the 70s, uh, things speeding up. But can you give me a bit more details about, yeah, what, what motivated, what, what are the, the causes behind this, this change in the climate? Yeah, I know it's good to first mention the, there's multiple causes um, of climate change. Um, and then climate change meaning both what we call human-induced climate change, but also natural climate change. So the, the climate is naturally varying as well on many different timescales. Um, and so considering this, there are many, um, there's multiple causes. So the natural causes of climate change um, are volcanic eruptions, as we've seen also um, last year. Those actually impact the climate. The amount of energy we get from the sun varies over time. Um, yeah, and then there's uh, what we call natural variability, which the most well-known example would be El Niño La Niña. That's also something which is impacting um, our climate. Mm -hmm. So those would be the natural climate variability um, drivers. And then there's the human impacts, which is mostly through greenhouse gas emissions, CO2, methane, but also land use, for instance, deforestation. It's also a big factor in um, human-induced climate change. Um, yeah, and then how do we know which one is the uh, cause at this moment? Well, of course, it's, it's always a combination of these, mm -hmm. but we have a fairly good idea of the, the magnitude of these effects. And we yeah, know- Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to get next. It's like, can we, is there a way to, to attach some sort of proportions? Like what proportion of the change is due to humans versus this natural uh, variability and factors? Uh, have Has these been measured in different ways, in some ways? Yeah, so we have quite a good idea of how, um, what the effect is of, for instance, um, a volcano erupting or several volcanoes in a row uh, erupting, what that would do to the climate in terms of, uh, yeah, we call it radiative forcing. So the, the, the effects on the radiative budget, the energy budget of the earth, and also the solar, the changes in the energy from the sun. Um, all these things, we have quite good understanding of the size of these things. Um, and based on these, um, that's where the idea comes from that in the 60s or 70s, we really got out of this sort of range of what we could call, we, what, of the climate change that we could still explain with natural variability. Oh, um, since then, th this gradual increase and, and rap more rapid and more rapid increase um, yeah, cannot be explained by these natural factors. Um, and then if you put the changes in greenhouse gases, the evolution of the greenhouse gases next to it, you see almost a one-to-one -one relationship. So it's quite clear um, that you can only explain the current warming um, by these greenhouse gas emissions. And then, okay, the, where, how do we know the greenhouse gas emissions come from humans? Well, I guess we 
know more or less what all the factories and all the cars are emitting. So we have quite a good idea of um, where the CO2 actually comes from in the end. And um, narrow, narrowing down a little bit on, on, onto the human action, um, what do you think, um, or what do we know about this uh, human intervention? That, uh, what are like the key uh, activities or human factors that are damaging the climate the most? Well, that's a tricky question, at least one that uh, is a bit out of my comfort zone, I guess. Um, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't dare to say the, the I don't know the top five of most uh, the largest emitters, um, but yeah, in general, it's certainly um, um, industry, um, mobility, so cars, planes, etc. Those kind of things are very important. Um, yeah. Nice. Um, great. I, I think this gives us already kind of a really nice picture of uh, how we got here. <laughs> And, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, as well about the future. And, and basically uh, both to understand the scenarios that uh, scientists are working in terms of where are we gonna be uh, in 10, 20, 50 years from now, based on all these key variables and indicators that you were mentioning in the beginning. Um, and also when we talk about the future, of course we, you know, it's, I assume it's all based in some sort of a statistical model that makes these kind of predictions. So I wanted to <clears throat> kind of know what the predictions are and also if you could help us understand how these statistical models work that try to, to make these uh, future predictions, these forecasts. Yes, a lot of good questions. Um... Yeah, so maybe let's, let's start <laughs> with the first one, which is what uh, what are the current scenarios that scientists are working with about, you know, where are we going to be in 10, 20, 50 years from now? Yeah, so I think that's actually part of the climate science field that has evolved quite a bit over the last uh, years or decades even. Um, in the past, scientists would really work with very simplistic scenarios, I guess, just let's assume that CO2 will gradually increase in the next hundred years or so or um, but now there's actually a whole science um, behind these what we call scenarios mm -hmm. um, so there's um, social scientists uh, people from economics uh, all these people work together um, to predict what will happen um, with in terms of global population our, our habits in terms of well like I said mobility food consumption, et cetera. And they then try to make up sort of storylines as they call it. And there's now, I think they work with four or five storylines, the most extremes being um, what, what we used to call um, business as usual. So what would happen if we just keep on doing what we are doing? Um, and the other extreme would be that we all get um, very active in terms of uh, fighting climate change and would change our um, habits completely and restructure our energy, etc. Um, and there's some things in between. Um, and this, in the end, leads to a couple of scenarios which are, in, in fact, again, um, radiative forcings, as I mentioned before. So that's, in the end, what climate cares about, the um, energy that it has to uh, warm or cool the climate. Um, 
And so you were talking, <clears throat> um, I'm going to go back to the plus one degree and the vertical agreements about not letting the climate go above one and a half or two degrees compared to the pre-industrial era. Um, how would the business as usual, so this worst uh, forecast, this worst scenario, what would the predictions be for of that of that you know worst scenario possible? Would that would that one get us way above this one point five or these two degrees? Yes, this um, sort of top end scenario, business as usual. Um, yeah, there's of course uncertainty on these predictions, um, but the predictions are that we will cross this one and a half, well within now and the next twenty years, I think, uh, roughly. Um, and by the end of the century, the warming would be on the order of, I think, four degrees. I do not know the numbers from the latest IPCC report by heart, but this is about the order of magnitude, something like four degrees or so. Wow. So way above what we, uh, what scientists in general think is a sort of a safe limit. And and to get an understanding of the range, the range of forecasts and, and predictions, uh, what would be the, the best scenario possible is, uh, you know, if we fully change our behavior, uh, how would that look like compared to this uh, plus one and a half, plus two uh, degree scenario? Yes, that scenario would also bring us to one and a half degree. I think around the year um, 2060 or 2070 or so, this kind of range. Um, but then uh, the idea is that it would stabilize around this one and a half degree. And yeah, like I said, perhaps on the much longer term would actually get us down again, yeah. uh, cool the globe, but it would stabilize around this uh, number of one and a half degrees. Um, yeah, so that's a big difference with the four and, degrees. Okay, and following this train of thought, um, so now we looked, we talk about the, the two extremes scenario, right? The, the best and the worst scenario. Let's say that the feasible scenario or what's most likely to happen is some somewhere in between. So what do you think, uh, you know, where do you, when do you think we're going to reach this one and a half, two degree uh, range? Uh, what's, what's the most feasible scenario in, the, in that sense? Yeah, that's a, those are hard predictions. I think that humans... Yeah, maybe in I'm getting too specific. And, and so yeah, I think humans are capable really of a lot, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> if we... If we really want to, I think a lot is possible. Yeah, um, yeah I think it's quite likely that in the dec next decades, perhaps 30, 40 years or so, we will uh, hit this uh, number. Yeah, I think that's yes. quite um, likely. Yeah, and so let me go back to the second part of that original question I was asking. And and I think that's like the, probably the, the last thing I want to touch uh, on, is, which is, uh, can you help us understand a little bit what goes into these uh, statistical models that make these uh, these predictions that may make these forecasts? And and you already said a little bit that it's it's uh, it's now more of a, a, a scientific field on its own that there is many uh, across discipline collaboration with social scientists, natural scientists, etc. Uh, but can you elaborate a little bit more so that you know we can have a better understanding of how these models look like? Um, yes, of course. Um, I guess it's it's important that yeah, in the basis it's actually not statistical models, and I, I will explain why. Okay. Um, the idea being that if you would use uh, statistical models, uh, that you cannot 
really extrapolate. So in, uh, meaning that um, the world that we are projecting in a couple of uh, decades is, is different from the one that we have now and the one different from anything we've observed in the recent past. Yeah. Um, so the idea is that, yeah, using statistical models, it's difficult to, uh, to predict something that has not happened before. Yeah. Um, so instead we use what we call physics-based models um, with the basis really being the, what we think we know about the physical laws of, uh, of science and uh, physics and chemistry. Um, and putting these physical laws together um, to really understand the climate system, to really mimic all the processes as far as we can, um, the processes that are at play in the climate system, which includes all the things that are happening um, on a daily timescale in terms of weather. Uh, but then much more than the weather, because it also involves uh, the flow in the oceans, the uh, melting and growing of sea ice every year, etc. So really try to mimic all these um, physical and chemical processes. But in the end, of course, a model is a, a simplified version. So there's many simplifications that have to be done. But this is the basis. And, and then the idea is that these physical and chemical laws um, do not change with time. So you can actually build such a model using present day observations and then actually project into a future which has not happened before. I guess that's the main difference with the classical uh, statistical models. Okay, so if I understand correctly, so you have a good picture of how things war work in our world, right? And, and in reality, and, and then um, you try to project some values for the key variables that explain uh, climate and then kind of simulating, right? It's some sort of simulation in, in, in which you say, okay, I know how things work. Let's imagine that uh, that CO2 emissions or, or you know, some other key variable is at this value. How would things look like? Is it something like that? And I'm sorry if I'm simplifying it in a way that it doesn't make sense anymore. No, no, that's, that, that's exactly how it works. So we use, um, one of those scenarios that the um, um, social scientists and economic scientists have, have developed, um, which give us the, the radiative forcing of our climate, um, and that we plug into our climate model, and, and yeah, that simulates um, what that would do, we think it would do to all the different parts of the climate, and, and, and importantly, how all these different things interact, because that's the complexity of the climate system, everything interacts with each other making it very a uh, very complex system as a whole yes I, I think that's a really good explanation i, I at least i got it <laughs> and uh yeah and i didn't know uh, really anything about this field uh beforehand um so i think this really brings it to an end i think this uh, was a really interesting and very useful conversation to get the you know the scientific factual information straight on 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 climate change and uh, I want to thank you for being a guest in this podcast again and for uh, yeah, doing such a great job at clarifying all these things for us. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Okay. And for this second interview of uh, this episode, we have uh, Matthew Goldberg from Yale University. Hello, Matt. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, Usually, Matt, I ask the, the guests to introduce themselves. Uh, if you don't mind, can you give us like a, a brief introduction? 
Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Goldberg. I am an associate research scientist at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and a faculty member at the Yale School of the Environment. I study persuasion, social influence, ideology, and strategic communication. I apply insights from my research to build public understanding and motivation to address climate change and related environmental, social, and political issues. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for being a guest to this podcast today. Um, so we had a, a first interview that we were talking uh, about, about the facts of uh, climate change and trying to get a good understanding of how the climate has been changing in the last few years uh, from a more natural science perspective and how, you know, how scientists are thinking climate change can go moving forward in like 10, 20, 50 years from now, et cetera. So we kind of work through our way through the scientific facts. And um, I wanted to talk to you to talk more about, uh, you know, about humans, the human psychology, and, um, you know, what, what can humans and policymakers, et cetera, do to address this uh, very relevant uh, issue. And so maybe the, the first question that I had for you to get us started with uh, this conversation was about what can you tell us about how many people or what's the overall support and believe that there is indeed a, a climate change and what are kind of individual level predictors uh, when it comes to beliefs in, in climate change? There's a wide variety of public opinion depending on who you ask in the world. Uh, so you have some basic awareness. So general uh, awareness that the issue even exists a general estimate is that probably around a billion people in the world don't even know that climate change exists. And that varies widely from country to country. And then the next step is the belief about whether or not it's happening. Uh, so whether the, the earth is indeed warming. In the United States, our latest measurement is 76% of Americans believe that climate change is happening. Um, but in some of our recent international work in over 30 countries and territories, we see this wide range uh, right before our eyes, going from 94% in Costa Rica who believe that climate change is happening down to 78% in Indonesia that believe that is happening. Uh, so we can see that just the, the basic acknowledgement or understanding that, that the issue is present uh, varies widely across the world. Wow, that, that's surprising, especially this, um, uh, this note about people not even knowing that, that it's happening, right? Usually in the media, we, we see a lot about, um, you know, people who know or, or receive in some way factual information and still discredit it. But, uh, but this fact that people just don't know about it, right? The, that's not very well known, I would say, at, at, least, at least for me. Why do you think that that is the, the case? What, what's um, kind of the evidence that, that we have in that front? The large level of variability across countries in awareness that climate change is an issue or that it's happening can be driven by a, by a large set of factors, including literacy, internet access, and other basic factors. Um, it's hard to learn about these issues if, if you can't read or if uh, there isn't any kind of basic exposure to information about the issue. 
Uh, once we drill down into uh, among people that are aware of the issue, lots of other factors come into play, such as education, ideology, exposure uh, to particular news outlets, and we can go deeper and deeper uh, into which factors are important in which countries. Nice. So why don't we go a bit deeper then <laughs> onto, that, onto that front? Um, you mentioned ideology and it's been very salient in, in the media and in academic research as well, you know, in the last few years that there is a, a big ideological divide when it comes to believing in climate change and, and support for certain uh, policy solutions to the topic. Uh, so what can you tell us about the role of ideology and maybe other, 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 um, other factors here? And how have these things evolved? Has it always been the case that, you know, people who associate themselves with a particular ideology differentiate clearly about beliefs in climate change, or it's more of a recent trend. Uh, what can you tell us about that? In general, the biggest difference is the US versus essentially the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, the research, unfortunately, is disproportionately on the United States where ideology is a massive factor in understanding what people believe about climate change, which policies they support, and so on. It hasn't always been this way. Um, in 2008, when our nationally representative surveys began, there wasn't nearly as much uh, polarization or uh, major differences between uh, Democrats and Republicans. But then there was a, a big shift in the discourse on climate change where there was an organized disinformation campaign by the fossil fuel industry, and they were really effective in driving the two major political parties in the U.S. apart. Uh, so what is known as elite cues. Uh, so when uh, elites are talking negatively about the issue, uh, it can trickle down to uh, the general public. And then when, when it's coordinated across uh, news outlets and uh, public communicators, then it can really polarize the issue. But when we look at other countries, ideology isn't nearly the factor uh, that it is in the US uh, and other um, particularly English speaking countries. So in the US, the UK, Canada and Australia, all of which have uh, very strong uh, fossil fuel industries Uh, so it's no surprise that uh, those countries also have the greatest proportion of people that are, are strongly dismissive or even hostile to the issue of climate change. Uh, in many other countries, uh, ideology is no factor at all um, because there's nothing inherent about conservatism or liberalism or any other facet of ideology that makes people more concerned about the issue of climate change or not concerned at all. And um, yeah, that's that's a great point. And and in those in those other countries where you know ideology is not as a strong of a predictor as in the is in the U.S., uh, do you have some information about what what might be driving the you know the, the beliefs about climate change in those other countries? Depending on where you are, but in general, if we take a, a large perspective of, across uh, many different countries. Education still plays a very prominent role where it's, it's highly related to factors like basic awareness and understanding of the issue. Because again, how are people supposed to develop a framework for understanding this 
really complicated and widespread issue um, if, if they've never really been exposed to information about it or if they, they don't have enough education uh, to really parse all of these details. Again, the United States is an outlier on this where education, the, the role of education is essentially zero uh, in predicting what people believe about climate change. And the reason for that is not because education doesn't matter, uh, it's because they, uh, its relationship to climate change belief goes in opposite directions depending on the political party. So uh, Democrats, as education goes up, you see that uh, concern about the issue, uh, willingness to engage in activism and uh, other factors also go up. Uh, for Republicans, it's either zero or the opposite, where education is actually negatively related to uh, belief about climate change, worry about it, and so on. For a while in the field, uh, scholars were arguing that this is because if you have higher education, you're more equipped with ways to justify your beliefs. But actually, more recent research doesn't support that. Um, it's more uh, because education is also overlapped with other factors like political engagement and exposure to information about the issue that is already consistent with their ideology. That's why uh, I would propose and other uh, research is starting to really support this, why there's such a big divide, particularly in the US and how education actually spreads uh, people apart even more rather than brings them together. And, and now that you talk about bringing people together, um, if we go from climate change as a more general issue to thinking about you know, what can we do and potential solutions and policy solutions to the problem. How does uh, support for particular policy solutions look like? And, and I know that you do a lot of uh, your research in, in the US and you probably know, you know the policy, policy solutions that are on the table more in the US than maybe in other countries, but it will still be super informative. Um, what are the kind of the policy solutions that, um, that people support the most, and especially across the aisle, you know, that, can potentially bring in the in the U.S. context uh, conservatives and and liberals uh, together. What are your thoughts on that? In the U.S. context, uh, what we see consistently high support for across the political spectrum is of uh, is to fund more research into renewable energy, and that's been consistent across all of the surveys we've done since two thousand eight, uh, where. Uh, folks are really supportive of these um, kind of like uh, systems building kind of policies. Uh, once we insert words like regulation or um, any requirements, we start to see a drop off, particularly for Republicans and uh, even more, uh, especially for conservative Republicans. But lately we found that there are there are several other policies that gave widespread support across the political spectrum. Some of these include uh, providing tax incentives to make buildings more efficient or, or homes more efficient. In this case, 86% of Americans supported that. There's still fairly high support for uh, regulating CO2 as a pollutant. That's one we've asked many times over the years, 75%. Um, but you start to see some really big political divides, like I said, once you start to insert words like regulation and requirements. Uh, 
Yeah, that's really interesting, this last part. And it, and it gets into, I know you've done some research on, on framing and depending on how you frame uh, particular policy solutions, you, you see the divide getting bigger. Uh, so you mentioned regulation. Are there any other additional taboos or taboo words that uh, like policymakers should try to avoid? Uh, to avoid, sorry, like green deal. Is that is that a a good catchy uh, concept? Yeah. Oh yeah, the the green new deal is such an interesting case, and um, some of our work on the issue shows that people are broadly supportive of the the general policies of the Green New Deal across the political spectrum. And our work on the issue showed that when we described it early on before you know, most Americans had even heard of the Green New Deal, widespread support across the political spectrum. As soon as uh, over the several months where it started to seep into the media discourse, we start to really see some significant changes, particularly among Republicans where the Green New Deal was discussed on Fox News more than any other outlet, um, and particularly with extreme hostility and emotion. They were just nonstop bashing the, the Green New Deal. And we can see as soon as you mention the Green New Deal to Republicans, regardless of the details, they, they're strongly against it. And we start to really parse this out that it's probably because of this development of this media environment, because Republicans who had, had not heard anything about it even several months later, they were much more supportive because they're relying on the, the general concepts rather than everything they've heard over the last several months. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked for Obamacare, right? So <laughs> it's it exactly like branding is huge. <laughs> yeah, Obamacare part two <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and I wanted to talk about that, that kind of links to uh, policymakers and policymaking. Um, so how do you think policymakers should, you know, address solving the problem when it comes to, as you're saying, uh, okay, putting forward some measures that can work from a scientific perspective, but then also convincing uh, people that that's the right measure. What should policymakers kind of keep in mind when you know, when trying to implement something or something new? I think a big factor is understanding their own influence. There's a huge literature in political science on elite cues, where people take cues from elites, particularly those that are part of their political party. It's difficult to convince particular elites to be vocal on this issue, especially if there are repercussions for doing so. And that's been really difficult on the Republican side in the United States. Um, but still across the spectrum, there are many legislators that are very concerned about the issue themselves, but they're not really talking about it or engaging people where they are. One general concept that we like to focus on is exactly that, engaging people where they are, know where they're coming from. So speak about the local impacts that will apply to people's everyday lives, making the connection between increases in extreme weather and natural disasters to the issue of climate change, making these connections between public health issues and climate change, and making it more concrete that it's here and now and local is really important for at least to do. And we don't always need to focus on the national level. Yes, that's where we can make the biggest impacts, 
but so much of this is a is a local issue and it's that's one pathway through which we can engage people uh, where they're at yeah and, and that links links well to i think uh some research that you have about how uh what can citizens do at the same time right what, what can you say about the the role of citizens in also contributing themselves more directly into, into addressing and, and solving the issue. A big argument in the climate communication community is how much to focus on individual change and, and how much to focus on systems level change. But that's a, a false dichotomy because of course both are important. There's only so much you can do through policy. You still need people to vote for elected officials that will support those policies. Uh, so one that accomplishes both, it's individual behavior but has massive collective influence, is voting. Uh, so many people in the United States do not vote, and uh, many of them are people that are deeply concerned about climate change. So turning those people out to vote is, is, a, huge, is a huge importance, um, but that's, not a, that's, of course, not the only thing. So we have systems level change, which can be done through getting the right uh, uh, candidates into office. But also there are many things that, that we can do ourselves. Um, but of course, this is distributed unequally. Uh, not everyone can go buy an electric vehicle or put solar panels on their roofs. Um, because, of course, there, there are huge disparities in, um, in wealth and income in this country and around the world. Um, but a big one that we have focused on uh, is talking about it. Um, in the United States and, and in other countries, there have been, there's been this issue of what we call climate silence, where people feel like uh, they will get into arguments or that it'll be a hostile conversation if they ever talk about the issue. Um, but in most cases, they're mistaken in thinking about that. So in the United States, there's about nine or so percent uh, of Americans that what we call the uh, dismissive, where they're highly hostile and vocal about the issue, but they're only nine percent. Uh, they're outnumbered by people uh, that are very alarmed about the issue by more than three to one. So you have lots of people that are concerned about the issue that are not at all talking about it, or if they do, it's very rarely and in a more conservative way. And then you have people that are highly vocal about the issue and that are disproportionately represented in the halls of Congress uh, that, that are moving this uh, perception of the norm. Uh, so we focus a lot on social norms because they're so powerful in one, influencing people to care about uh, this issue themselves, but also giving people permission to talk about it. And that's where I think we'll start to see some really big increases in concern and action on the issue once people feel more comfortable engaging with people on the issue. Because in many cases, you'll be pleasantly surprised that engaging, you know, someone who's conservative or from a particular state or lives in a particular neighborhood or has a particular set of views, that, they, that they'd also be concerned about the issue if we meet them where they are. Yeah, and I can I can totally relate to that because thinking about my my own experience, and again, one data point, who cares? Probably, but uh, but yeah, I, I totally relate because it's not a, an issue that I was as much concerned years ago, and and the way I got concerned and, and thinking and talking about it was through through personal networks, through friends, basically, that were you know a lot more conscious and and started giving me 
some very basic data, but already it gets your brain going and, and you start, you know, searching a bit more. And uh, yeah, I can totally see that mechanism uh, being in place. Uh, I had a one last question. I, I don't know if it's the best question to end, but, but I wanted to ask it anyway. It's, uh, so we talk about politics, we talk about policymakers, what can they do? We talked uh, about people, what can people do? But of course, uh, companies, companies like private corporations, companies have uh, a big role in our economy and of course in our society and, and on climate change. What do you think, uh, what can they do? What, what, what are the, the key ways in which they can contribute to solving the problem? First and foremost is their activities, right? Like to the extent that they can move their activities to clean, renewable energy sources, uh, the faster we can help address this issue. And particularly these extremely large corporations, that's an enormous impact uh, for this issue. But also they have a, a big normative role. So I was just talking about social norms. When companies make these positions very clear publicly, it starts to give people permission to talk about the issue, become concerned about it themselves, or even engage in consumer activism. We have uh, been doing some recent work on the issue where we're gauging public support and actual action on uh, how people reward and punish companies based on how they're acting uh, related to the issue of climate change. And by doing that, we can start to see uh, some enhanced action uh, when once you make it easier to do. Uh, so companies can do a lot through direct impacts of their own activities, but this normative aspect uh, shouldn't be understated because uh, it can have a, a, like a synergistic quality to it once more and more companies make commitments, it starts to really signal and hammer down the, the importance of the issue to the general public. Um, wow. That's, uh, you've given us like a lot of food for thought, really good, interesting uh, informations, uh, information and points here. Um, you know, I just wanna thank you again uh, very much for uh, being here, I guess, uh, in our podcast and, and, and for uh, filling our minds with uh, all these data and, and information. Anytime, thanks so much for having me. Um, and that concludes our episode on climate change. Our interns, uh, Teresa and Alessandro, collected a lot of additional interesting information, links and resources, which we will post in the episode summary. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. This Made Simple podcast has been brought to you by the SimLab, the Communication Science Department and the Institute for Societal Resilience at the Freie Universität Amsterdam. The podcast is created by our hosts, Julia Ranzini and Andreu Casas. Production team includes Yolanda Veldhuis and Marike van der Velde. Editing and outreach done by Teresa Rodriguez and Alessandro Perego. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to follow us on Twitter at Made Simplecast and Instagram at Made Simplecast as well to stay up to date.